Unusual opening today, Pete. Listen. built my friends all right there's the boss Bruce Springsteen thank you very much Bruce I, I put that in there because later on we're going to talk about a lexicon topic scratch built but first we got to introduce this whole show wait a second it's Saturday the 23rd of June 2018 and that makes this solder smoke number for you Ralph 2000 18 unit number 205 205 <laughs> I, was, I was i was all confused i thought we were back in the past there for a second all right welcome welcome back you got, to you got that realm you got that realm it's 205 <laughs> oh, man don't be harassing the listeners pete it's early in the show behave yourself um it's, it's probably that's what we're gonna open with now pete's pete's rambunctious behavior probably has something to do with the summer solstice here we yeah. are um, and but but we'll talk about that. It is we just went past summer solstice, and that that's always somehow significant for those of us who use the HF bands. Hey hey, before you get on there, I I got a grouse. A grouse. I got a grouse. Oh my first god. First of first of we should not forget the shameless commerce division. We have forgotten it. But, yes. But our, uh, our listeners thankfully have not, and they've yeah. been sticking it to Jeff Bezos regularly. Oh, oh thank you. yeah, shameless commerce. And the reason I bring that up is I was touring Amazon for amateur radio products, and I am really perturbed. Bayofang now has a model in Juliello. A Juliano <laughs> Bayofang. Baofang. Yeah, Juliello. A Juliello color. You know what? The I, yellow color. <laughs> you know, I can't believe but, it. You know, as I was doing this Bruce Springsteen thing this morning, I thought, wait a second, I'm going to dump Bruce this, this today, and I'm going to open the show with Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. There you go. Yeah, that, we'll do we'll do that next week. Rhapsody yeah, and yeah, Juliano yeah, Blue. There you go. Well, anyway, I didn't need to put you off track, but I couldn't believe it. They stole my color, and they got a bale fang and a Juliello. Lawyer up, Pete. Lawyer up. Do we cheat him in how? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back to <laughs> back to our regular programming. Yeah, the summer solstice is here, and we always mention that. I, I didn't really have anything to say. About that, but it coincides this year with a, a very close approach of the planet Mars. You know, we have a long-standing interest in Mars here because our, of our aspirations to someday win the Elser Mathis Cup. Those of you who are unaware of this, look it up, Google it, Elser Mathis Cup. It awaits a winner, and we have been talking about this for quite some time. Mars is now at its closest point to the Earth, I believe, in the last 16 years. And it is really bright. So this caused me to do something that I wanted to do for a long time. That's to pull the telescope out, dust it off, and get ready for some Mars observations. Because it's going to be in this close position down during June and July. And it's, uh, it's visible early in the morning. Early in the morning. So right before dawn, I have to get up and I have to look 
south to the southwest. And I had read that it was going to be really bright. And I went out there. Man, it is bright. It is bright and red. But because it's the longest day of the year, you got to get up really, really early. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 4.30, the, stars, the, the sky up here is starting to brighten. So, not too good. But I got, I did get out there. I got the telescope. I got out of line. I got the scope on it. And, uh, man, it is, it is the brightest I've ever seen Mars. So, we were looking at it. I, could see, I, could, I had one brief viewing window before I went into the clouds. And I was able to see the Central Valley up there. They're having a big... Uh, planet-wide uh, dust storm so uh, that that might make things a little bit less interesting during this period but it was really cool to see mars so bright other seasonal news graduation graduation Ooh. period just went through it maria who you guys have been hearing about for many years just graduated from high school yep we had her down there for high school graduation billy my son i know you guys follow this stuff um, always glad to inform you he's up in boston yep that's two out of high school billy's up in boston doing a um, biochemical research up there. He got a really good internship for the summer, and so he's up there having a good time in, in Boston. And we had Father's Day, and I know you had you had events for Father's Day. You sent me a musical thing that your son had recorded. Yes, yes. And I gotta I gotta find it. I, I mean, I, I I meant to look at it again, and I can't find it. So send it to me again. I want to take a look at that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I told him he went on a two week trip to Italy. I said, take a movie and write original music and sell it. There you go. There <laughs> yeah. You go. Yeah. Va bene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, now, Pete, now it's time to discuss to get to the radio stuff. I think we should start in an area that you and I are, this is not really our thing, the antennas. We're not antenna guys. It's not February. It's, well, it's just, yeah, and it, it's also, these days, this is another indication of our contrarianness, perhaps our cussedness, our, our curmudgeon status, you know, because these days it's very much, it's much more common to hear guys say, well, I, I don't really work with the circuitry, but I love to work on antennas. I think you're with me. I don't really like to work on the antennas. I'd much rather work on the circuitry. Which brings us to issues of weather, comfort, temperature, humidity, mosquitoes. What's today, Pete? It's June the 23rd. Yeah, but it's, it's not February. February. It's field it, day. Field day. Field day. <laughs> Day. Oh my God! And I just like to make note of the fact. Yeah, he's got he's he's got his sign up there. He's showing it on the screen. Field Day 2018 N6QW operating Class B battery, 40 meter QRP, keeping the home fires burning. Those no CW, no CW, no CW. Those guys serve who who sit at home in the air conditioning also. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. I, somebody I was talking to somebody on the radio. They asked me. They said, "You going out on uh, on Field Day?" <laughs> I just paused and I said. I really, you know, field day in a lot of ways it's for it's for the newer hams. It's for for guys who haven't suffered through many of them already and decided, geez, I'd really rather be back in the in the shack. So here we are. I think you bumped your mic. I think your mic moved in a little too close. There Got it there. Go. A little bit closer in. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Hey, perfect. We, we got to keep Giuliano calibrated here. He's got to be perfectly. Yeah, we got a new headset mic, and we don't know exactly where to put anything. I think it's right, and he got it, and he and he got it to as as part of his his, his dedication to solder smoke excellence to get rid of a little bit of hum that we had here before. New new headset. New headset. It's looking sharp too, Pete. All right, so back to the antennas. You and I both have had directional antenna problems. All right, my my tale of woe is that the nor'easter came through here, the last nor'easter of the winter, and snapped 
one of the fishing poles that held up my beloved 17-meter moccasin. Maybe we should go through and tell, tell this tale of wool first, then we'll talk about your Yagi. Uh, all right, so the, the thing knocks the, the moccasin down. I take it down off the roof, and I, then I order a replacement fishing pole. I put the fishing pole in there. But then I think maybe, you know, I, ne- I didn't do this the first time around, and I should have. Let me just put it up on like a 10-foot pole in the backyard without going up on the roof and make sure that it's actually resonant on the frequency that I want it to resonate at. I, I had just assumed that the, the MoxGen dimensions would be right. But this time I did it, and this time I was able to do it over a broader range of frequencies because now I got the micro X. Before, all I had on 17 was my crystal-controlled, uh, scratch-built X 17 But now i got the micro X that goes much broader. It's general coverage. So I could do resonant frequency checks on this thing across a broader range of frequencies. And to my embarrassment, I discovered that I had been running this thing all these years with it resonant on a frequency far below 18 megahertz. Now, it still worked pretty good. The SWR was was reasonable, but this thing was not resonant. It was resonant down around 17.5 megahertz. Mm. And then I started, Too long. Yeah. Too long. Well, well, and I'm thinking, why would that be? Because I, I took the dimensions very carefully from MoxGen, which, come, which came from Les Moxon and LB, was it Sebic? Uh, Sebic, yeah. Sebic, yeah. And so these guys know what they're talking about, and I just used the software. But then I realized that what my, my mistake, and it was my mistake, and it's something I've just not paid a lot of attention to over the years, I used insulated wire. And so I started, when I started looking at this thing, a lot of guys were saying, if you use insulated wire, the, 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 the length for the, for the resonant frequency will be off quite a bit. And you have to make, a, make an adjustment, and it'll be, the antenna will be too long, as you said, and and so it's because of the insulation. Now I gotta admit, I don't understand this. I, I have to start thinking and learning about the physics of why having a little bit of plastic around the thing between the wire and the rest of the universe would would affect the resonant frequency. But it that's I think that's the problem. So I have not put the thing back up on the roof, and I'm I'm gonna I, I calculated that it was about three percent long. And I started looking for for online like Mox, Moxon calculators that would allow you to just plug in, yeah, number, you know, 14 insulated wire. They're not there. So my, my solution was I'm probably just going to go ahead and pick a frequency 3% up from the target frequency from like 18145. Have Moxgen generate the lengths and then put those values into the into the wire, leaving it insulated. Or... I could just go to the wire man, buy some uninsulated wire, start over, and just put a new element up there, but put put the 17 meter antenna up on the roof. But yeah, I mean it, it, it's important. The, the one one thing I want to note one uh, one of the uh, calculators that I've been using that I like quite a bit is is this it's a free bit of software called Fornec2, four number four NEC2. You could download it for free, and it does all kinds of antenna analysis for you. It can do all kinds of optimization stuff. You could ask it to optimize front to back. 
You could ask it to optimize uh, SWR or bandwidth, things like that. And for a given antenna, it will spit back to you all kinds of different possibilities. So I, I kind of like that. But uh, the Moxon, 17-meter Moxon is still kind of out in the backyard, all kind of wrapped up. And I, I've been having a discussion with you about what to do with it. And maybe before we talk about your Yagi, because your Yagi's in a similar, you got a similar quandary with the Yagi. So here we are. We're, I don't think we're, we're even at sunspot minimum yet, right? I think we're, some people say, well, we, some say, some people say we may be up to two years out from sunspot minimum. So we're, we're approaching it. But it, we may be going down for another two years, and then there'll be a long time coming back out, out from the minima. So 17 is going to be trashed for, it's going to be in bad shape for a long time. So my temptation was to, to maybe replace the 17-meter Moxon with a an antenna that would allow me to have directivity on 20. But I feel guilty about this because I feel like I'm abandoning good old 17 meters where I have strong emotional ties. Then I thought, and I know you've been through the same thing, same kind of thinking, maybe I'll just go out and buy... <laughs> I don't like to say it, but buy a, a hex beam with elements for 17 and 20 and put that up on the roof. But then, I don't know, Pete. I, I, I didn't like the idea because here I'm surrounded by all these home-built radios, homebrew radios, scratch-built radios, and I'm going to go and buy an antenna. I never bought an, I've never bought an antenna in my life, so I'm going to buy an antenna and put it up there. I think the decision... What I'm going to do, just to keep it simple, I'm going to put the 17-meter Moxon back together, tune it up, make sure it's on the res right resonant frequency, put it back up on the roof, and just have a 17-meter Moxon. And, and that's, that's my current thinking on the whole thing. It's a dilemma. So where are you? What, what's going on with your antenna? Well, well, I want to go back to your plastic-covered wire and dimensions and what have you. Uh, that, that's a little bothersome. First of, if you were operating at a much, much higher frequency, let's say you're building a, a 900 megahertz uh, Moxon antenna. Well, the, the dimension added by the um, plastic coating would be significant at that frequency. At, at 17 meters... I, I mean... I don't get it. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it I, just... It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make, it does, I don't understand it, but then again, I remember sort of in the back of my ham radio mind, I remember hearing about this over the years that, that insulation will change the resonant frequency. It doesn't, it doesn't really make many, any sense to me. The electrons are running up and down the, the wire, you know? It, it it's becomes more of a spacing issue to, in my mind, yeah, spacing I, I, yeah, dimensions. I, I, I would like to hear from listeners on this. You know, in the, um, we need to talk to Allison. Uh, Allison's going to tell us, please tell us. Allison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Allison she, but, will tell us. But she's more of a circuitry person too. She knows yeah. everything though. So it's, it, would, yeah, it would be yeah. good, but her expertise is, is in the circuitry. But you know, on the, uh, if you look in some of the, the forums or the fora, uh, out there, there's there's a lot of discussion, heated discussion about this. This is like phase noise with SI oh 5351. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Fight, fighting words going back and forth. Yeah, there. But, uh, yeah. 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 Um, 
Anyway, just let me uh, check here. We're doing good. But, yeah, so I don't really understand why. But here's the interesting thing. When I, when I went into the fora about this, they said, oh, yeah, the insulation will result in the antennas being about 3% too long. And then when I went and calculate, and I, and I built the antenna exactly as Moxon's, Moxgen called for. The dimensions were the same. And sure enough, when I checked the resonant frequency, it was about 3% lower, right? 3% so, of 18 is 500. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, it's, it's about right. See, it fits. And, anyway. Um, so, anyway, I think there is something to it. You know, the other thing I remember was sometimes, even on the dimensions of an ordinary dipole, for some reason, they would say that you had to use a different, a slightly different formula, not the 468 over frequency in megahertz, yeah. if you had a plastic insulator at the end, right? Remember that? This is sort of part of ham radio antenna lore. And that doesn't seem to make any sense. What difference does it make if you have an insulator at the end or just a piece of rope? Because where do you take the dimension? Yeah. At the end of the insulator or which end of the insulator? Yeah. So I, I can... I can see that. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of uh, it, well, it, the thing. De- the thing is definitely resonant below the desired frequency, so I have to shorten it and so and try to tune it. And that's the other thing. It's 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 not all that easy to tune one of these things because you've got a lot of different dimensions. It's not like you've got a regular <laughs> Yagi where you just have the reflector and the director and the driven element. Now you've got these ends that have turned back in. You've got the spacing between the ends. And the spacing between the elements. Right, yeah. One of the reasons I'm just going to go back with the 17-meter Moxon is that it's a couple, well, it's laziness. I already have the the spacers. I have the thing built physically. So I just have to redo the wire, either tune it or start over with uninsulated wire and put it up there. Um, Instead of going out and buying, you know, all all the materials again and starting to rebuild this thing. Uh, I mean, as much as I would like to get on 20, um, I think I think I'll just keep it simple and put the 17 meter antenna up there. 20 meter antenna is, is quite a bit bigger too. The 17 17 meter Moxon is about 20 19 feet 19 feet wide, and the uh, the 20 meter antenna is about 25 feet wide. So yeah, significantly different. One of the things that I guess um, I would caution you on, because uh, having experienced this myself, is you. Taking measurements in the 10 to 15 feet off the ground versus 30 feet in the air. I remember tuning up a beam, a homebrew beam one time at uh, essentially, you know, 10 or 12 feet. I was standing on the top of a ladder. (laughs) Then when I got it up in the air, everything was wrong. So you do get some ground effect. Yeah, I know. That's more significant than I think. Plastic coated wire. I know. So where you take those dimensions, I mean, the ground effect is more significant than the wire. Look, I know. Trust, you, me, and then, trust me, that's true. See, this is why I'm not an antenna guy because by the final, by the time I get the thing up on the roof, I don't want to take it down again and start snipping wire. Yeah. I mean, yeah. With the dipole with an inverted V, you just droop the droop the lines down, snip, 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 well, pull it back up. You know. You know, you these simulation programs allow you to put a vertical distance. Yeah. Just. Just run some numbers to see what the difference is at 10 feet off the ground, a perfect ground versus 50 feet off the ground. 
and then you get some idea which direction it's going. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'll I'll have to play with it a little bit. Yeah, but. because I'd hate like heck. You go through this whole rain dance, you get it up in the air and say, "Guess what? It's now resident at 19 megahertz." <laughs> <laughs> well, this gets to the other option. Uh, I I picked up at a ham fest, and especially at this point in the solar cycle, the other temptation I had was not to put this thing back up, but to use the little tripod that I have on the roof just to support a big 130-foot doublet antenna fed with open wire line and then just keep it simple and being able to use this thing on on 75 meters, maybe 160 meters, 60 meters, all the low bands that are going to be in much better shape. I was tempted to do that. But it's fun to spin these things around, Pete. You know how it is. Oh, yeah. Well... Yeah, there, I want to just comment two things. First of a really good source of some antenna ideas is Sprat. Uh, Colin, G3VTT, ha- ha- antenna and anecdotes. Uh, there's a lot. Matter of fact, I was looking at that guy was dealing with the same problem. He had a limited space, and, and he tried different things, and he finally came up with a doublet fed with 450-ohm line and a tuner. And he says he's... He's working more stations that has a broader band coverage. So, you know, that, that might be the other thing, a thought that went through my mind is what you may want to do is take that tower and make a 17-meter doublet so you can still get on 17 meters and build a 20-meter boxing. Yeah. But then that's the problem, too. I thought about that. Or I, or I thought about putting up the um, the 17-meter the moxin and then just putting a, a 20-meter dipole below it, you know? But then, but then that's that's one of the problems. Then you get to the problem of nesting on moxins, and this is another thing that I don't really understand. For example, we we're all the hex beams out there all have all these bands nested. They look like it looks like a nest, it looks like a spider's nest, right? They're all one inside the other, boom, 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 nicely. They're very, you know, it looks they look very very symmetrical, very nice. But all the literature on the moxins warn. That you really can't do that, especially on successive bands. You can't do it 17 and 20. You'll see a few guys out there who've tried it, but then you'll find other guys who said, yeah, I tried it and it didn't work because well, they're too close in frequency and one will mess up the other and you end up with poor results on both bands. It's like the fan doublets. Remember the fan doublets? They yeah. have all the common feed line and they'd say, as long as you make it 40 and 15 <laughs> or, yeah. or, or 20 and, you know, in some other band, you're okay, but you just say, okay, I'll put five bands on it. And they said, it'll work, but not not really good. Yeah, I know. I know. So, anyway, this is, uh, I think I'm just going to, I might try to do both. Put up the doublet up there, and then also put up the 17-meter uh, moxin. Because I, I like the 17-meter moxin because it's it's completely scratch-built homebrew. It fits in well with the rest of the kind of the homebrew uh, spirit of the station, and I just it just wouldn't feel right for me to plunk down 500 bucks to get you know a box of you know <laughs> parts, a, a hex box, heck you know hex beam and put it up there. It just doesn't, doesn't doesn't seem to fit. You know? If you if you consider the 20-meter uh, doublet, if you made it 90 about 98 feet long. Yeah. That gives you three half wavelengths. That's a gain antenna. Yeah. You got you got to think about where the lobes are going to be. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> we'll think about it. Anyway, what's going on? You had antenna trouble too. Yeah. Well, this one is um, it's a strange one. I, I seem to be having some intermittent operation of my uh, two element beam, tri band beam, 
Uh, I mean, all of a sudden you'd be receiving something and and then the signal would kind of drop. And it wasn't overloading of the, the transceiver because you could see it on the power output. So I said, well, you know, there's no moving of parts in there. It's just traps and coax. So I called the, uh, the B manufacturer and I said, you know, I might have to buy another set of traps. And the guy says, how much power are you running? <clears throat> and I got the heavy-duty traps that are good for 2.5 kilowatts. He said, you didn't burn out a trap. He said, I think you got a coax problem. So I, I don't know what it is. They're, part of the coax is run on the ground, then it goes up in the air. I might have had a little animal chew into something, so I got to go check it. I bought another piece of coax, but, I mean, it just – it was strange. You'd be – You'd be listening there, nothing moving, all of a sudden the signal would drop. So it was intermittent. It was yeah. intermittent, the intermittent connection. And those things drive you nuts. You know you'd like things to fail <laughs> so you could say, well, yeah, yeah <laughs> that's the problem. Especially with, when it's intermittent, and, and, you know, 50 feet above your head. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, man. Hang in there. So I was uh, I was entertaining buying a 20-meter um, a Moxon because I found, even though I have a tri-band beam, um, I, I hardly ever operate 15 and 20, uh, 15 and 10. There's hardly anybody ever on. So I was thinking maybe I'd get a commercial 20 meter Moxon, but I'm still pondering that. Yeah, it's a tough choice. These are the, these are the, the, the agonizing decisions that we make as damn home brewers, Pete. But what is significant is if you're going to spend some money, don't buy that $10,000 radio, build it. But then put the money in a really good antenna. Go through this noodling process, and you don't have to spend 500 bucks. Some really good wire antennas will, will work well for you. That's right. Yeah, but the antenna is important. And I think that, that yeah. is, it is important to point out. I think a lot of the new hams come to the they, – they don't understand. They think, oh, the antenna is sort of an afterthought. They, because they have experience with, like, FM radios or, or um, UHF TV where the thing works fine even without a big antenna. And then you think they carry that over into – <clears throat> radio and man those are the guys that you get you, you find them calling you and you know that they're they're in the right skip zone they're running about 100 watts but you can't hear them at all and then you ask them about the antenna and it's like well you know i got this thing on the back porch and it's hanging off the end i thought it would work just fine and no no it's, you, you, need, you need more than that anyway enough yeah. of this antenna agony piece Oh, oh, just just a postscript. Yesterday, I was listening on 40 meters, and this guy says, oh, yeah. he says, I'm getting really ready here for, for field day. He said, I'm here on my back deck. It's about 10 feet off the ground. He said, I put up a six-foot pole, and he said, I've got a dipole here, and he said, I'm going to work the contest. <laughs> I thought about it. 16 feet off the ground. <laughs> I hope he's got a lot of beer because it's gonna he's going to have more fun drinking beer. I mean. Get that thing up higher. Well, the, this is the other thing that gets me. Some, For some reason, among new hams, there is this attraction to verticals. You know, you get the, yeah. Oh, I, I put up a vertical. It says it'll work on all the bands. And you know the old joke about the verticals. They radiate poorly in all directions, you know. And, and yeah, and, I, I, and then you'll say, well, why don't you put up a dipole? And then there'll be some pushback, you know. And I need dip- two supports. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it just doesn't seem right. That vertical looks like it should be, you know, better, but it's not. For for us old timers, the big deal was the Gotham vertical. 
23 bucks and work the world. <laughs> <laughs> did you fall for that? No. No, neither did I. I didn't have 23 bucks. <laughs> Good thing. <laughs> All right, back to the workbenches now, away from this antenna agony. Uh, lots of stuff been happening on the workbenches. Um, you've been you've been involved in a continuation of your display wizardry. You are moving you are moving so fast in this area. I mean, I, I, you're going to be doing hologram displays before we know it. It's going to be like you're going to have yeah. the, the 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 other station actually appear right there in your shack with with the display stuff you've been doing. Tell us about this, Pete. Well, I, I'm really taken by the fact that uh, you can have amazing color displays for for not a lot of money first of uh someone asked me a reference of where i bought my some of my color tfts the uh 160 by 128 they're four dollars and 78 cents delivered from china <laughs> four dollars and 78 cents. i told him i said buy two it'll cost you less than 10 bucks and you have them on your doorstep <laughs> i mean this uh, change in tariff thing may may Put put the kibosh to that. Well, I mean, it'll go to six bucks. So yeah, what? six bucks. Yeah, but I'm just saying that uh, uh, you know, for very little money, uh, why would you put an LCD in in a project when you can have uh, you know the amazing color? Uh, the other one that uh, <clears throat> has really um, caught my attention. This one is a little more expensive. It's thirty five dollars, but the thirty five dollars includes an Arduino Mega twenty five sixty. And it includes adapter plate and includes the display. So everything just plugs together. So, I mean, you don't have all these inter wire interconnects. I mean, they really paid attention to that. And the beauty of the Mega is it's got uh, 54 digitals and 16 analog uh, inputs. So, I mean, you got a lot of pins to work with. And the, the beauty of this is it's quite large display. So you get lots of colors. You can even, uh, it has one of these little... Uh, uh, flash drive screen uh, adapter on the back. You can put a you can put a picture in there. I mean, put a picture of yourself and have frequency displays and everything else. I mean, 35, 35 bucks, and and it's touch screen, so you can touch the button and change bands and all kinds of things like that. So, uh, you know, it it takes a little bit of time to learn how to do these things, uh, and and I by by no means I'm just scratching the surface. There's some really experts as a matter of fact jack purdom has got some amazing touch screen you just you touch a button and it tunes up touch another button it tunes down i mean this is the kind of thing you can do with these that you know essentially 35 dollars worth of hardware so um i i think it's a great time in the hobby and adding these displays adds a whole new dimension to your projects uh, and i mean you can take some old projects and retrofit them i mean you don't have to build everything anew it just it's so adaptable, and it's, you know, for like a $20 bill, you can have a color TFT, Arduino, SI5351, and an encoder. <laughs> I mean, 20 bucks. It's so, amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, but but the display the display thing, you're so far ahead of me on this because I have my micro vidx here, and it still has the seasickness uh, screen <laughs> display. <laughs> and, you know, I feel... I feel mildly queasy every time I look at it because I think about you and your seasickness. So my next step forward is just going to be to replace it with a 16 by 2 blue one. Yeah. It's I, easy to pop it right in there. Yeah. But, world of difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, even with the 16 by 2 LCD, 
I was amazed what Hans Summers has been doing with that 1632 oh, yeah. display. Holy cow. You look at what's going on with the QCX transceiver that he's got. He's S-meter. got yeah, yeah, he's got a, he's got an S meter in the 16.2. He's got um, a battery power indicator. He has even worked out a rudimentary SDR display, kind of a, a waterfall display in there. He's he's also in the same 16.2 in the same 16 by 2 display in which you have the S meter, the VFO frequency, the power indicator. He also has the CW decoder running. So it's decoding and putting in text form the CW that's coming through the, the transceiver. This is this is really phenomenal. I mean, look, we're not CW guys anymore. We've moved beyond dots and dashes. But the technology in this QCX thing is so interesting that I'm I'm going to ask Lisa to get me one for a belated Father's Day present because I would just like to to play around with the, the technology and the phasing and the uh, and the uh, the Talo mixer and all that stuff. So it's really really cool stuff that Hans has done with that and and still with the 16.2 display. Yeah, you know when I look at that. I, I I just see single sideband. It's coming. It's coming. I heard, I heard a rumor. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I heard he, a rumor. He's got all he's got all the elements there. It's, I heard. It's, I heard. <laughs> I heard six to twelve months. That's what I heard. Not from Hans, but I was on the air talking to somebody else about this, and they said that they were at an event. Oh no, they heard uh, on another podcast. Hans was interviewed. I think it's Ham Workbench. That's an, another podcast. And Hans was interviewed there, and I think it, there it was he indicated 6 to 12 months for the SSB version. A lot of potential there, man. We, yeah, well, I, I just looked at uh, his Talo detector, and to me, a couple of relays, and, and forget the Arduino, go to the Teensy. Mm-hmm. If you go to the Teensy, you put the codec board on it, and then you got the waterfall display. You got all the f- digital filtering you want in there. Bob's so your for, uncle. 100 bucks. <laughs> 100 bucks, you got it. About another $50 beyond the QCX, and you got it. You're there. This brings me to the phasing, phasing technology, because that's at the heart of the whole QCX thing. And uh, this is the, uh, you know, basically a direct conversion receiver, but image reject. The problem with the direct conversion receiver is you got to listen to both sides of zero beat, a lot of unnecessary interference. But, but Hans gets beyond this by going with, the image reject single signal direct conversion phasing technology. The same technology that's in my HT37 transmitter is, is applied to reject the other side of zero beat. It's really interesting stuff. Um, just one one thing I read. One of the articles that Hans has out there was he was taught, and I want to ask what you think about this, Pete, because this is the only thing where I would kind of, I kind of one of my eyebrows went up where Hans said something. He said, that you know, and, and he is obviously kind of singing the praises of this image reject phasing receiver technique. And don't get me wrong, I love it. I built one; it sounds great. I love the sound of, of DC direct conversion receivers. This has that sound, but without the opposite sideband, so it's great. But he says that he thinks that one of the reasons that these receivers or or DC receivers in general sound better than superheterodyne receivers is because the crystal filters often add 
uh, kind of what I think what he called kind of a, a phasing delay or, uh, or, or different delays as the signal goes through the crystal filter, unless they're really high quality crystal filters. You're nodding in agreements. You, I am. You with them? Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm with them. Yes. Maybe my hearing is just not that good because <coughs> I, I, I have had super head receivers that I think sound, well, I wouldn't say completely as good. You don't get the sense of being that close to the, to the ether that you get with the direct conversion receiver. So maybe I'm in agreement. But I hadn't heard that thing about, oh, no, he called it group delay. <coughs> group group yes. delay going through the crystal filter. Yes. Wow. Now, you can, you can see this or you can hear this by putting a mechanical filter in the loop. The Is that better? Col yes. Collins you sent, you sent me one. I have one here that you sent yeah. me. I still Collins, Collins mechanical filter, better. Really? Okay. But did you know Collins is not making mechanical filters anymore? They, they wimped out. They said, "Why SDR? Oh, <laughs> you, no. you don't need them. You don't I mean, need them." We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the, the lexicon thing. Yeah, yeah. we don't need them. But I, I have a phasing story uh, to, to <clears> share with you, and I, this this is this I had I had a lot of fun with this because I haven't been building any new rigs here lately, but I, I have been going back old rigs and fixing kind of problems or shortcomings or things that I wanted to work on and this is this is fun sometimes it's kind of a nice way to take a to take a pause kind of regroup take advantage of lessons learned apply them to projects from from a few years ago I went back to my Frankenstein phasing R2 receiver I guess I built this two, three years ago. It's alive! It's, it's alive. alive! It's alive. And I put it in one of these really big boxes that our friend Tim sent yeah. us. Yeah. And it looks looks really great. And I was really proud of it. And then what happened was, one year ago, in May, Farhan came here. It was great. We had a wonderful visit. But I was very proud. I wanted to demonstrate to Farhan my phasing R2 receiver. So Farhan, being a guy who really knows what he's doing, immediately takes it down to the CW portion of the band, and he wants to just check by tuning around to see what the image reject, how successful it is. You know, so you, you find a CW oh, signal, yeah. you tune to zero beat, then yeah. you go the other way, and you shouldn't be able to hear it at all. That's a great way of testing the opposite sideband rejection on this kind of receiver. And it completely failed. It you could hear it on both sides. I was I was embarrassed. I said, "Man, I don't know what's wrong with that thing. I didn't know I don't know what it was." Then I, I after Farhan left, I pulled it off the shelf and it was working fine. Then I put it back on the operating position. Then a few weeks ago, I fired it up and it wasn't working again. It was it was obviously some sort of intermittent problem in component. there. Component, component. Right. So then I said, "Okay, I should be able to fix this thing." And I put it on the workbench and then I you know I started. The troubleshooting procedure, right? And you know, you just—it's—it's. It's, there's a troubleshooting logic where you first start trying to narrow it down to the stage that's causing the problem. And I immediately noticed that when I put an RF signal into the antenna port, there are two direct conversion receivers in there. Basically, that's how you build it. You build two separate direct conversion receivers. They're real simple, SBL1 mixers with a couple stages of audio amplification, with a local oscillator signal provided to the two different 
DC receivers, one 90 degrees out of phase with the other. But what you should see coming out at the other end of these DC receivers is essentially the same level of audio should be coming out, right? And I immediately noticed that one of the receivers was, was producing audio, the other was not. So one of the receivers was dead. And believe me, that will mess up your balance in this kind of receiver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So then I start, okay, then now, I know, now I know where the problem is. It's a problem in this one DC receiver that's not doing the direct conversion. The RF from the oscillator is fine. It's, it's the same level as the other receiver. That's not the problem. So you start getting narrow, you're narrowing it down, narrowing it down. You start following the signal. And Rick Campbell, the designer, spent a lot of time building the diplexer at the output of the SBL1. And the purpose of the diplexer is to properly terminate not only the signal that you want, but signals way above and way below. Because if you don't do that, you know, you could have spurs and all kinds of birdies that you don't want that are that are making it into the rest of the receiver because they haven't been properly terminated at the end of the mixer. Right. So Rick did this, and he also included in the diplexer a lot of, like, all, all, he's already starting to do some of the audio selectivity. So there's a low-pass filter and a high-pass filter in there aiming to get the audio response from, like, you know, 300 to 3,000 KCs, right? That's where you're getting your selectivity in this thing. The DC components, the, the, the phasing circuitry has taken care of the opposite sideband, but you still need to kind of narrow the audio response to get proper selectivity. And I discovered that one of the components that he had in there was a 3.9 millihenry choke. That's a lot of, a lot of inductance. Yeah. Not microhenries, millihenries. And I had a tough time sourcing some of these components, but I found some 3.9 millihenry chokes, but they were unusually small for a choke of that high inductance, which means that they were packing a lot of wire into a very small space. It must have been very, very fine wire to get it. It's about the size of a of a of like a half ohm or a quarter ohm resistor, right? Number number thirty eight wire. Holy cow! Really, really fine stuff. Because and and it, it was obvious what happened was in one of the receivers, one of these chokes had gone open, and I could see signal at one side, no signal at the other side. So I take it out, I put it on the ohm meter, it's open. Right, it's not supposed to be open. It's, for DC, it's got to be a short, right? It's open, so that's the bad component. And I didn't have any others laying around here, but I wanted to see if I could get the thing working. And I did have in the junk box some one millihenry chokes. So I said, okay, look, I'm, I'm just going to keep it simple, and I'm going to replace both these 3.9 millihenry chokes on both DC receivers with one millihenry chokes from the same batch. And boom, perfect. The thing that the sideband rejection is really excellent. The thing went back into business. I wish Farhan was here. I could show him that it works really you well. You fixed it, yeah. But you know, this for me, Pete, this is a very satisfying troubleshoot. You know, I hate it when you go through the whole troubleshoot and all this stuff, and then you find out that a blob of solder has just fallen across one wire, or that the, the dielectric in some of the coax has melted through or a Murphy's whisker has fallen down someplace, you know? 
or you, you were troubleshooting it and just because you put the control in the wrong spot, nothing's right, nothing's really wrong. You know, this was really a component that got bad that required really the application of troubleshooting techniques. And then you get to fix it and then it works brilliantly afterwards. So Or your neighbor is <laughs> pumping RF down your antenna and it's not broke. <laughs> Oh, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've had that problem. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, or you think that it's really, really wrong, and you find out it's the AM broadcast station down yeah, at the end of the yeah, road. Yeah. 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 So that was one of my um, kind of kind of go back and fix up, follow up and fix stuff. Uh, Armand's HRO dial. Armand, my friend from down in Richmond, had sent me this beautiful HRO dial, and I put it in the receiver, and I started messing around with it. I noticed it was kind of... It's kind of loose. It's kind of kind of squirrely. These things require some mechanical tightening every once in a while. They're such big, you know, mechanical devices. I just went and did and then and tightened those up. But then, and that was very satisfying. Got that working. But then the real satisfying one. And I told you about this. He's he's crazy. <laughs> he knows what I'm going to say. All right, this is this is okay. Pete and I have this this long running semi joke kind of disagreement about VFOs and how to get variable frequencies in your transceivers. Pete has gone completely over yes. the dark side yes. of Arduino's SI5351s. He's, he's even beyond DDS. He's into the phase lock loop circuitry, all that stuff. Right. He was one of the major, the leading proponents, one of the early, early adopters of the SI5351. But I still have kind of a loyalty to the old school coils and capacitors. You remember those, Pete? Those things, they look like they've got funny little veins on them. They look like bread slicers. The coils, the little curly Q wire goes around. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that's the old way of making variable frequency oscillators. So when I was building my BIDX20 uh, scratch built, which we'll talk about in a minute, I decided that I was going to keep it completely analog. No chips. Not even voltage regulator chips. Not even LM386 <clears throat> chips. Nothing. Everything completely discrete, including the oscillator. All right? So, <clears throat> knowing that you would be scrutinizing the stability of my oscillator, I went back to the, to the master, to Doug Dumois, and I looked up, what he said you should do to get a stable VFO. And he had a lot of great ideas in there. First, air-wound coils. The coils should be wound with an air, you know, air core. Air dielectric. Air dielectric, right. So I use a little cardboard a tube from a coat hanger wound thing. Then he said, nothing but NPO caps, NP0 caps. Put those in there. And then he also said, don't use like one big one. If you, have, if you need like 100 picofarads, do 10, 10 picofarads in parallel. This will spread it out, prevent currents heat. from heating, what, what, yeah. all this stuff. Be real careful about heat. And then he said, you make sure you take the VFO and put it in a separate box. right? That will prevent heat from other parts of the rig from getting it. So I did all this stuff. And it was pretty stable. But that pretty word... <laughs> yeah. relative it's relative it's relative here put it this way the barkhausen criteria were met 
Yeah. KB81. <laughs> but the Giuliano criteria were clearly not being met in, in that it was drifting a little bit. And when I first built it, you know, it wasn't drifting that much. It would drift over the course of a few hours. It would drift a few hundred hertz. Back in the day, that would be considered rock stable. Not today. Today, hams on 40 meters have minor conniptions if it drifts 40 hertz. You're all over the band. What's going on? It's out of control. Ah! Right? All right. So I know I got to deal with this. So I start looking at this thing. and I'm thinking, all right, what would Doug Dumas do? And then I, I, I leave it on. Now, I've got a little Sanjian frequency counter. You might think that's cheating, right? That's digital stuff. But I have it on a sidecar, a little box outside, you see. And so in my mind, I haven't violated the discrete analog purity of the rig. It's just like a piece of test gear. It's off to the side. But it allows me to monitor the frequency. And it does. it's still drifting. <clears throat> it's drifting up. What does that say to you? Probably inductance. It's heat. Heat. Yeah. Heat. Heat is is in there. And then I realized, I I followed Doug DeMoor's advice, but I've kind of hurt myself because I put the entire VFO circuitry inside the box, including, like, the Zener diode and the dropping resistor. Oh, those will generate heat. It's all, I got little heat elements in there. Yeah. Even some of the amplifiers. Uh, there's, so there's a couple buffer stages and a couple amplifier stages. There's a lot of heat being generated in there. And it's all trapped in this little box. It's trapped in the little box with the main tuning capacitor, the, the inductor, and everything else. So i got to get the heat out of there. So I start thinking about what to do with it. And then I realize what I'm going to do is what I've done with some of the other recent VFOs I've built, including the VFO in the Armand HRO rig. And that is... Keep the box, but in the box, the only thing that goes in the box are the frequency-determining capacitors and inductors. All the powered circuitry sits on the side of the box or the top of the box or in an, in an, in Arduino, in a, in an Altoids tin outside. So all the heat is out of there. And then I followed all the other rules that Doug DeMore described, and I put it all back together. And believe me, the Giuliano criteria are being met. This thing doesn't move. You turn on even from a cold start. Now, it's running at a relatively low frequency. It's running down at around 4 megahertz. So it's easier to build a VFO like that. But I found it very, very satisfying to get this thing going in that way. Also, one, one of the things I found, another, another little thing uh, I was able to fix was the Sanjian frequency generator, the frequency counter that I use. It was um, it was generating noise, and I discovered that the noise was going back into the receiver. Every time I turned this thing on, you'd hear this really high-pitched whine in the background, really annoying. But I, I discovered, I, I used the scope, and I kind of figured out how it was getting back in. It wasn't, going, it wasn't getting back into the receiver through the signal path. It was getting back into the receiver through the DC power line. So I just took, took two 100 microfarad electrolytics, at about 16 volts, and put it, put them on the uh, at the point inside the receiver where the DC was being supplied, and another inside the Sanjian box where the DC was connected, and Ecolo gone, got rid of the wine. So very, uh, very satisfying follow-up stuff here, Pete. 
good times. Sometimes it's great when the stuff doesn't work right because then you get to fix it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, is you have an older analog technology, but there's remedies that can be applied, which you've which you've done, which yeah, which then you know make it a far far better than than its ability. I mean, we operated with analog VFOs for a long, 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 long time. So why not take advantage of the knowledge base to make improvements? Yep, yep, yep. It's uh, it's it's fun. You know, and I, and I got the uh, you know, I have the Digitia here with the digital VFO too, and so we we can we can have one foot in both worlds. We could recognize, but you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna be building any. He's not, he, he's he's happy for me to have one foot <laughs> yeah. in both worlds, but he's he, you know he's he has moved on. All right, that's that's fine. That's I, I I matter of fact, it's funny. I have a forty meter a CW transceiver, which actually works pretty well. But it has a Raptor tuned VFO, and and I already got I got a plan. <laughs> it's gonna rip you know, it out of there. All right, I got a plan. I, I you know I have had no luck with the damn Raptors. You know, everybody says you know Jamal was a big fan of them. He yeah. thought that they were they were really stable and everything. But I, I every time I've tried one, I've ended up giving up on it, and, and I found that it was much better with that with a, a coil and a cap. You know. I don't know. Maybe it's just I'm not. I've and I've tried using all different kinds of them. I just they they heat up and there there's an element of instability there that I mean Demois even acknowledged that I think in some of his his writings on this stuff. I mean it's like the Mad Mad Months. Does the TV work? Yeah, but not very well. See <laughs> <laughs> what in there kept pulling parts out. Yeah, of it. yeah. All right, now anything else on repair stuff, Pete? No, anything I, else from the bench? No, I think we're we're good. Um. This is time for the Shameless Commerce Division, my friend. Yeah. We want to thank everybody who's been using the Amazon box in the upper right-hand corner of the soldersmoke.blogspot.com page. Anytime you want to buy something from Amazon, whatever it may be, go ahead, start your search there, just search for it, then continue. You do your purchase as normal, and we get a little bit of money from Bezos and the suits at Amazon. So it's really it's a nice way to support the podcast. We do use the money for, for purposes that support the podcast, and it, uh, it it's very, very gratefully received. So it's an easy way to do it, and that's the best way to do it, I think. Any more word on HQ2? Well, <laughs> it, it, it could be here. We don't know. could be coming to, to Northern Ooh. Virginia. Ooh. I don't know. This, it's kind of controversial. Some people are for it. Some people are against it. Some people are against everything. I mean, no matter what, you'll always find some people. Hey, you know what? You know what I can't understand is I'll put a video up and, you know, it's just people can make their points. But consistently, people give me a thumbs down without without an explanation. You know, it'd be, be nice to get a thumbs down to say, well, yeah, I didn't think the quality was very good. I mean, I'm give me some feedback. But a thumbs down, a thumbs down doesn't help me. You know, you didn't like the lighting, you didn't like the sound, you didn't like this. I mean, consistently, you get you get a bunch of thumbs ups, but every once in a while you get a thumbs down. And I think it's the same person. All right, listen, everybody, go to Pete's videos and give him a whole bunch of thumbs up. <laughs> well, no, with explanation like, and explanations. Great I, I, video. All information is good information. If if there's something that I'm not doing, I'd like to know. Just just. Tell me why. I mean, I suspect those people say, I'm against it without any explanation. You know, why are you against it? Well, I'm just against it. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Let's talk, time. We have some lexicon issues, Pete. Some lexicon <laughs> things to talk about. Things have been coming up. And I started out the show today with that clip from the Bruce Springsteen song, Racing in the Street, because it was playing on my Pandora feed on the way to work the other day. I've got Pandora, by the way, which is pretty cool. If you guys aren't using Pandora, uh, my kids tell me I'm behind the times, but it works for me. What it is, you, you tell them what kind of music you like, and then they just start sending you more of it. But they not just from that particular group or artist, but from groups and artists that are similar in style. So you get a, quite a variety there. But anyway, Bruce Springsteen was playing as I was shooting down uh, Route 50 on my way into D.C. And the line that got me was, I got a 69 Chevy with a 396 Fuley heads and a Hurst on the floor. She's waiting tonight down in the parking lot outside the 7-Eleven store. Here's the line. Me and my partner, Sonny, built her straight out of scratch. And he rides with me from town to town. We only run for the money, got no strings attached. We shut them up and we shut them down. Built from scratch. That made me start thinking, where does that term come from? Because this feeds into the kind of discussion that we've been having a little bit on the blog and here on the podcast about what constitutes homebrew. What do we mean by homebrew? What do we mean by scratch built? I think most of us instinctively know what the scratch built term means. It means it's not a kit. It means that you gather up the parts and you build the thing. That's a scratch-built home brew. If you send away for a kit and they give you a bag of parts and a circuit board and a kind of a Heath kit-style instruction, well, you're building something, but you're building a kit. You're not. It's not scratch-built. Scratch-built is you just build it yourself. Now, we got into a bit of a, an, a, a discussion back and forth with Jack Purdom because he wanted to include design into the thing too and i i think you and i agreed that you don't have to design it have it called homebrew it could be a homebrew rig that you also designed but if you take somebody else's schematic and build it that's homebrew but i i just googled scratch and scratch built and to see where that came from and i'll, I'll put on the uh on the blogspot page the link to this but there's some really interesting descriptions of where it comes from and part of it comes from the world of sports it and comes from racing like track and field apparently in the old days they would scratch in the dirt the starting line right and they would also kind of handicap runners so they would give certain runners advantage advantages they would let them begin ahead of the starting line right I, I, and, and, but if you if you started from the starting line, if you weren't given any special advantage, then you were starting from scratch, right? It also comes from I think that that's that's sort of the origins of it, and then it it also goes into the world of cooking. Yeah, like baking a cake. Baked from scratch. That means that you went out and you got the flour and the sugar and the vanilla and and everything else to make the cake, and the opposite of that was going to the store and buying a box of cake mix, right? So I guess that would be the equivalent, the cake mix would be the equivalent of a kit. Yeah, you bake the cake, but you baked it from a, basically a kit, the cake mix box, as opposed to going around and getting from scratch all these different elements. But I'll put it up up on the blog. It's kind of, kind of an interesting lexicon issue. We'll ask Steve 
uh, our lexicographer to take a look at this. I, I wanted to interject two comments. First of, I think kits can be qualified as scratch built. And the reason is you scratch your head when you get the kit saying, how does this go together? Where are all these parts? I'm missing some parts. So Especially if you don't want to read the manual. Yeah, you, yeah. That's another problem. Scratching your head saying, how does this work? So in that vein. And secondly, on Scratch Bill, thank you for the plug. Visit www.pastapete.com, my food cooking website. Where everything is scratch built. Oh my gosh! This, this man, he is he is a source of fascination and information. Pastapete.com. You're gonna be on the cooking channel. You know that? <laughs> hey, you, weather, you go on with the beret. You go on there. Holy cow! You could be a hit. I, well, I gotta tell you a story. This is really funny. You'll be uh, on Oprah for real. Yeah, well, this this I'm in the checkout line at the grocery store, and I always look to see what people are buying because <clears throat> having an interest in cooking, I can look at the ingredients and the elements. And there was this rather attractive woman behind me, and I said, "Gee, I said, looks like you're gonna have something good for dinner." And she looks at because my picture's there. She said, "You're pasta Pete." <laughs> you're kidding, really? <laughs> And I said, yeah. She said, I've been looking at your website. I said, oh, okay. Well, how many viewers do you get? I mean, you I, get a lot? I, 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 I don't have a counter on it, but I mean, someone found the website and they said, oh, yeah, I recognize you. You're Pasta Pete. I said, you're right. Wow. You, you could be famous and you don't even really know it. Well, the thing is, I said, this is another thing beside the, the parade. <laughs> I mean, but you could, you could probably get the stats from your ISP yeah. and figure out how many people are looking at this yeah. thing. You might find that you have following. There, there could be like even like cult-like following popping up in different parts I, of the world. The, the, the last entry that I made was at Christmas time when I showed how to make waffle cookies. There's an embedded video that shows you how to make the waffle cookies. That is awesome, though. Somebody <laughs> recognized you in the line at the supermarket? <laughs> She Holy said, cow! That doesn't have. Yeah. That doesn't doesn't. Nobody says you're solder smoke Pete. No, they <laughs> yeah, don't say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Man. scratch build. You scratching your head, saying, "How does this go together?" <laughs> well, but that's you see, that's that the scratch the cooking analogy is really appropriate yeah. too, because for example, if, if you go and you get a recipe from a cookbook or from your website. And then you go to the store and you buy all the ingredients and you make it. Nobody says, hey, that's not home cooked. Of course it's home cooked. Uh, yeah. Right? You, you didn't you didn't design the recipe, but you still made the dinner, right? Well. It's the sa same thing with electronics. If, if I find a schematic in a 1962 issue of QST and I take it and say, yeah, I'm going to build this thing, right? And I build it. And somebody says, well, what is that? I say, that's a homebrew rig. They'll say, well, did you design it? They say, no, no, it was, I, I got a schematic from QST. I still homebrewed it. I'm not the designer, right? But I'm, I'm a homebrewer. Just like I didn't, I didn't write out the recipe, but I cooked the pasta. Well, there's, there's a, another element and dimension to this bill with the homebrew. You look at those schematics many times, and I'll hear you all the time say, I didn't have this, so I substituted that. Or right. I didn't like having an LM386 in there, so guess what? I built, uh, you know, a two or, and three. Or I, or I spotted an error. Yeah, or spotted an error. 
So yeah, yeah so there's, I, you know, someone who would argue that that's that's not the case is not true. No, you you have to really know what you're doing to build that stuff. Thank you, Pete. I feel a lot better. This is coming from Pasta Pete, an authority himself. All right. <laughs> visit the uh, website. <laughs> oh man, visit the website. Yeah, you should, you should get some. You should get some money for this. I, I got stuff. Big, big money. I got a stuffed cabbage recipe. My my chili recipe. You you would be fab- fabulous on cooking TV. You could be on the Food Channel, man. You could not only that, you could occasionally pause and give you know advice for life and relationships and things like that. Ego, it'd be great, man. I tell you, you would be you'd be sitting down with Oprah. You'd be you'd, it's amazing. You'd be, you'd be, you'd, you'd and be there's good. there's a innovative recipe with the baked pears. The baked pears that have creamed them in them, and it has a filling with. Uh, Blue cheese and uh, walnuts and a maraschino cherry. It's like made at Christmas time. So you you bake the pears so they're soft. Yeah, there's pictures in there. Shows you how to do that. Oh my gosh! And a book. You could do book deals. Yeah. Holy hey, cow, oh. man! This is fantastic. Okay, related term. This came up. I got this one from Farhan. Farhan was you know there's a you could see how much interest. The, the micro bidx has generated just by looking at the bidx20.io mailing list. All right. So it used to be that I had my mailbox was stuffed full by posts from, you know, from the uh, EMRFD group or QRP tech or um, QRP.com or QRP.org, all those groups. They have been completely overwhelmed by the number of messages out there in the BidX20 group, almost all of them related to guys who are trying to get the micro BidX going. And it's it's a vibrant community. There's a lot of help, a lot of support, a lot of helping newcomers along. It's really a beautiful thing. But in one of the messages, and Farhan is an active participant in a lot of this, in one of the um, the uh, the exchanges there, he used a term that really caught my eye. He called, he said hard rock radio, hard rock radio, right? You know, because there was the soft rock, right? The hard rock. And I said, I wrote to Farhan. I said, man, that is a really useful term. It really kind of captures the spirit of what a lot of us are doing. Because the two elements there, hard, like in hardware. I always Versus joke. software, yeah. Right? <clears throat> and then rock, because the... The, the way we're doing, in most cases, the the selectivity is with quartz rocks, right? Old rocks, old style, and we're not using SDR. We're not using. We're not doing it in software. So I saw. I wrote to Farhan and I said, "Man, hard rock radio, excellent term." But he said, "Wait a second, it's not mine. It comes from Rick Campbell. Rick Campbell used it many many years ago, and I don't think Rick used it in the way I just described. He had, he had some different thinking." But I, I just I just like it. I like hard rock radio. So I thought we would we would uh, mention that here as now as we're talking about lexicon issues. Steve Silverman, please tell us what you think about this one. We're waiting for your ruling, Judge Silverman. Uh, there was another term, but we mentioned this last time. I, I really liked it. But but there's been a couple developments in this area um, on uh, cabinetize to cabinetize. This is related to George Dobbs with his socketry. Once you, um, you once you've decided how to cabinetize a rig, you move on to the socketry phase. But cabinetize this this led to some emails coming in 
proving that I am not the only ham in the world running rigs in wooden boxes. Far from it. Many guys are doing this. And we got we got a nice email from Bruce, KC1FSZ. He was the, the peppermint Bidex guy for a long time. He's finally, and he was the guy who had the Bidex spread out over like a four-foot board. Well, he's taken it, scrunched it all down into one wooden box, and it really looks excellent. He even put like handles on the side, you know. The thing only probably weighs about a pound. He's got these two big handles. The handles probably weigh more than the rig, but it looks cool. And that's one of the main my, things. My thoughts were if you could find one of these old Zenith wood cabinet radios, you know, had the round dial in it, it was a piece of furniture. Man, put a bit X in that and have that. Well, I'm glad, yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned this because Stephen, Victor Kilo 2, Bravo Lima, Quebec, is way ahead of you, oh, Dr. Giuliano. Oh. He has done it. Oh. And I have it I have a picture of it up on the blog. Oh man. And it is awesome. It's one of these old radio cabinets with a bit X in it. Man, bit X in a wooden box, but a cool wooden box. So thanks to Stephen from Down Under for sending that up. We uh, we got a kick out of that. Um, time for um, Solder Smoke Mailbag. Bong! Um, Bob Crane, W8SX, was our correspondent out of four days in May. He sent back a number of really four day, interesting Four reports. days in what? Four days in oh, May. Four, oh, you, what's it? FDIM. <laughs> hey, listen. I want to say something. <laughs> I think four days in May is a really nice event for ham radio. And it's it. they do a lot of work in pulling this thing together. But every year, I find myself learning about ham radio through, even though I don't go there because I don't travel that much, but when you see the reports that come out, the speakers, the interviews, they do a lot of great work. They had Han Summers. They had uh, Jack Purdom there. They had a number of other people. And Bob Crane always goes out and does these interviews. And I, I just hats off to the guys from the QRPARCI. And they do a great job. And uh, I just I just thank them for doing everything that they do. It's an important event on the uh, QRP and homebrew calendar. And they sent me their their um, the, the 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 results like the uh, the compendium, and man, Hans Summer's article in there is just just awesome. I mean, and that's really what alerted me to the uh, to the awesomeness of the uh, QCX transceiver. So terrific! And thanks to Bob Crane for for sending us a, a bunch of really good interviews. I've already had two of them up there on the blog. We'll try to get the others in here during the days and weeks ahead. But thanks very much for doing that, Bob Crane, Pete. We got a really nice email from Alpha Bravo One Oscar Papa AB10P Ralph, and he writes in. <laughs> that's who, that's the shout out this morning. Oh, who that, is that? To, to Ralph, that's the guy. Oh, who, to Ralph. He does the MP3 player, and he said, "Tell me what issue it is, so this way I'm not listening to the same one over again." <laughs> All right, but but you should be you should be kind to Ralph <laughs> right, because man, his message was so cool about your. Your design, he is building an LBS rig, the Let's Build Something receiver, with the AD9850 VFO in it. Yeah. So, and it sounds like he's, he's close to the, to the moment of, uh, of, of first, first signals there. So, terrific. And, and it, Pete, it's always cool to see somebody out there benefiting from all the work you put into the website and get that LBS design out there. So, yeah, LBS, excellent. Uh, with the 9850, good work there, uh, Ralph. Hey, another mention of Bruce, KC1FSZ, who we mentioned a few minutes ago. Man, 
He's got something that really caught my eye, and I know I know it got your attention. I don't I, you you heard about it. I don't know if you saw it on the uh, on the on I, the I blog. Did, I did afterwards. Ah, uh, digital pot, microchip. It, it's not a mail order thing for for the, the the industry out there in California that that we reported had taken you know Pete's computer. None of it actually happened, but that was fun. But digital pot in potentiometer in variable resistor, a digital Digitally controlled variable resistor. Holy cow! This is like I, I'm so I've got such mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, amazing, fascinating, awesome technology. On the other hand, scary as hell. That beautiful, simple little part with a wiper going across a, on a kind of a crescent of carbon. That that part that's been with us from since at least 1930, right? Now has been digitized. Opens up all kinds of great possibilities, right? So I mean, I'm I'm not a, I'm not I'm not even close to wizard status in this area, but I could imagine if you've got receivers in which you're you're getting an S meter output on one of the I/O pins, right? Just run it down to the digital potentiometer, right? So that when you're getting signals that are 40 over, it backs off on the gain a bit. That's a real simple AGC circuit right there, right? Man, cool stuff. Thanks for alerting us. That. Are you, uh, have you ordered some digital pots? No, Pete? no. but uh, I wanted to give a shout-out to Charlie Morris, ZL2CTM, in his SDR with the Teensy. He, he does that in the Teensy and the codec, not with the, not with the microchip. You can sit there and just click on the mouse and raise or lower the volume. So it's already it's a- already been done without using the microchip. Charlie Morris. Charlie Morris also been getting famous on Hackaday. Yeah. He's been on there twice, yeah. right? Yeah. Pretty good, Charlie. Very good. All right. Great stuff. Um, we got a nice email from Jason, W5IPA. Jason has done a micro X in Giuliano Blue. I got a nice QSL card here from Jason. I got I got to send it back. It's a, it's a beautiful card here, and he he notes our our contact on the uh, two way contact on the micro X. Really, really good. So I'm going to send him a card back. Um, speaking of micro bid X, our, our, our friend Roger out there in California, KJ6ETL, also known as Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu, um, <clears throat> he has gotten his micro bid X on the air and he has shaken up the ether in Central California, working stations all the way up and down the state. And Congratulations! It was a it was a bit of a hard slog for Roger. He is a, a software wizard, but hardware is kind of not his thing. But he hung in there, and he's got this thing together. He's using the same wooden box that I am, and he took the copper foil and he, he came up with this nice, nice, neat shielding inside. It looks really nice, and Roger has got a lot of great ideas for innovation and improvement, which is exactly in the spirit of the micro X. But he got it going, and, he, and he, he's making a lot of contacts, and it was like it was it was tough to get everything together and get it working. And then last night he sent me this scary message. He said, "I'm thinking about putting 24 volts on the drains of the finals, just to see if I get some more power out." Heat sinks. Heat sinks. I know that's a, you gotta, my sinks. first reaction. My first reaction was, "Leave well enough alone." Yeah. For now. Yeah. No need to rush. Yeah. You, Don't blow that thing up. The worst thing to do is when you get this beautiful rig working 
and you've gotten work in it and you're just starting to enjoy it and you think, hey, I'm going to try one more thing. <clears throat> and then there's this huge release of smoke. <laughs> yeah. We've it's been very there. disheartening. We, we've been there. We've both been there. So I would say for the time being, Roger, leave well enough alone. Play with that thing for a while. Have some fun. But don't. Don't torment yourself by going into another round of hair pulling agony because it can be it can get ugly. And put a fuse put, put a fuse in your line. Fuses, heat sinks. <laughs> yeah. Leave that for for the winter time. Yeah. You know? Not not for now. Let's see. Oh yeah, one other one other thing I wanted to note, and this is a, a note of thanks uh, to Tim Walford over there in the UK. Walford Electronics, the uh founder and president of the Constructors Club, and the guy who's been putting out hot iron. Yeah. Issue number 100. Now, when you consider that it's a quarterly uh, publication, (laughs) 25 years of hot iron. Holy cow, that's a long time. So congratulations, Tim, on reaching that milestone. And Tim has decided to pass, I, I joked with him a little bit, pass the baton or pass the hot iron. Yeah. To uh, to another ham. I have information up on the on the uh, on the on the uh, on the blogspot.com page. They're looking for input. They're looking for magazine. They're looking for articles. This is a really uh, worthwhile effort. And if you have something that they could use, uh, send it to them. You'll find the information on the page. But three cheers for Tim Walford and for for Hot Iron. Pete, you've made many contributions over the years and. Uh, it's a wonderful publication. I just hope that they, I know that they will, will continue. Wow, 25 years. It's a tradition that has to be carried on. So three cheers for Hot Iron. You, you know, he has an interesting other life, aside from the Walford. He he has a farm, Upton Bridge Farms with, with cows. He's got a, he's got a real farm, meat, a lot of business, work. Meat business. Yeah, I know. And plus his amazing kit business. Yeah. He's always coming up with these innovative kits. Yeah. It's, it's great stuff. I'm feeling the pressure here. He's got a farm. You've got the you've got the cooking thing going. Yeah. I got I got to do something else here. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm, I feel very kind of monodimensional here. It's it's, it's discouraging. Or it's inspirational. You guys are inspiring. Well, you know the thing is, the cooking is much like like radios. Like for instance, I'll sit down and say, "How can I make this?" Just like, "How can I make a radio?" You know, you go through the same thought processes. It, it's it's parallel. I'm going to pass your website on to Elisa, who does far more of the cooking around here than I do. PastaPete.com. Pasta, PastaPete.com. All right. I think that's all we got this week, this month. You bet. Everybody have a re- have a real good summer. We'll, we'll be back in a month or so, hopefully with further updates on all this, all these projects. Pete, 7-3 from Northern Virginia. 7-3 from the left coast. Thanks a lot. Hey, we'll see you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported. And there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites.
Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from Lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!